Okay, why don't we go ahead and get back. Let's take a look at the major events. Major events of this period of time. And there's a lot of detail. And I'm going to suggest this chronology, if you will, and suggest these events. There's some debate on some of them. Some of them we can say precisely because we have a verse that ties them, but others from context and from other little indications, we can come to some decisions on some of them. Some of them will remain indefinite. So major events, and I've got them broken down on your outline sheet. This is the sheet I passed out last week. Broken down into five parts, the beginning, and some of them are clearly spelled out in terms of the beginning. Some of them, these in the first half, are conclusions that probably don't have a specific time frame attached to them. And then I've got a middle category there. Those are very precise and specific. And the second three and a half, those are conclusions as well. And then the end there. Then I think somewhere in there is the Bema, and that's not on earth. Make sure, uh, distinguish the Bema outside of earthly experience. And that's unclear. We don't have a time frame for that. We don't have a time frame for anything eschatological to church, specifically. But this is where I would put the Bema, if you want a time frame. Mm -hmm. I think we go out of time when we are raptured. So, some say that that takes place right after the rapture, like the rapture, and then... Yeah, and maybe we should put it at the very top. Yeah. But, well, does it matter for outside of time? <laughs> Good point. So let's start with the beginning of this seven-year period of time. What kicks it off? A covenant. A covenant, covenant with Israel, Daniel nine twenty-seven. That starts the clock ticking, the eschatological clock. This starts Israel's 70th week, precisely at the signing. A covenant is made with the nation of Israel. This begins the 70th week of Daniel. This begins the seven-year period, not the rapture. Now, it's possible that they are simultaneous. It's possible that they occur very close together, but it's not the rapture. The rapture does not tie in necessarily with anything in terms of Israel's time frame. This is what starts it, based on Daniel 9.27. And I've mentioned, in fact, on the chart, I show there might be a little bit of time frame. It could be hours, could be days, could be months, perhaps even years. We don't know. Between the rapture and the signing of the covenant. More than likely, it's a short period of time. It appears that... Based on 1 Thessalonians 5.3 and also that first seal judgment, that there's an initial peace. There's an initial peace. So this is the peace in the Middle East that everybody's looking for. Yes. Welcome to open arms. Yeah, and if somebody can propose something that is pretty reasonable and people agree, Israel agrees to it, the conflicting Arabs agree to it, that's going to be a major thing, and this guy's popularity is going to skyrocket. The covenant may involve this peace, this exactly. The beast, right? Hmm? The beast. Covenant. Eventually, we'll see that he's the beast, yes. Right. Yeah. So, Does the rapture have to be? Yes, because uh, all of the arguments against us going through that period of time. But, I mean, if there's a time of peace. Jim, did you have? Yeah, I would, I would say that 
once God takes the church out, now he's going to begin working with it, rather than an overlap. Well, I mean, I didn't mean like mid-trib or different. No, I, I understood. Like, yeah. Initial yeah. I, there's not a verse that indicates that, but it just makes more sense in terms of God's done with the church. He's taken the church out. Now he's going to deal with Israel, and this kicks it off. So these take place almost simultaneously at the beginning. First Thessalonians 5.3, and that one says they'll be saying peace, peace, and then peace goes away. While they're saying peace and safety, then, then, in other words, after a short period of time, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs. And that's a little phrase Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse. Like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So an initial peace, and we said, in fact, when we were talking about Israel, I said, based on that Revelation 11, it talks about that three and a half year period of time in terms of days, that probably begins with the signing of a covenant, that 1260 days. On the day the covenant is signed, that begins the ministry of these two witnesses. They're raised up. There's no verse that says that they prophesy on that same day, but very close to the signing, I think they begin prophesying. Eric, do you, does, does there any indication that that period of peace lasts the full three and a half years? No, 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 the no. Combination no. of this last place. No. Okay. We have no time frame. Okay. We just and I would say that it probably is short lived. Yep. Based on that First Thessalonians five. Yeah. In other words, suddenly then it's it's just the birth pains. It's not actually the abomination of this. Yeah. Right. So two witnesses raised up, and that's precise. That Revelation 11 passage gives us a time frame, and it tells us, you know, three and a half years that they're going to have that ministry. So I would put them beginning at the very beginning, right after the signing. Since 144,000 are sealed, and there's indication in Revelation 7, 1 through 3, that that takes place before judgments come. So I put that at the very beginning as well. The ceiling of 144,000, and they have a ministry throughout. It's not written necessarily in chronological because you've got 11. That's when the witnesses start claiming those 144,000, that they they hear what the witnesses are preaching and come. So it's a, out of order, so to speak. <laughs> I'm talking about verse-wise, or chapter Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It seems like yes, Samson chapter yes, 11, yeah. but... Right. Okay. Yeah, the chronolo- uh, one of the major problems of interpretation in the book of Revelation is the fitting the chronology. But it does give us little time frames that can help us pinpoint these things. And there is a time frame in, in Revelation 7, 1 through 3. Well, it doesn't give us a time frame, but it gives us an indication that it comes before the judgments come. And it makes more sense that the two witnesses prophesy and the response of that are the 144. That's why I come to that conclusion. Okay, so we have at least five events that we have a Kind of a pinpointed date, except for the Bema. So if you want to put them on your timeline here, here's your first three and a half years, and at the very, very beginning, we have a covenant that kicks it off. We have the two prophets, and then we have the 144,000. And you can put peace in there as well. Okay, now, this is the first three and a half years. That's number two on your outline sheet. First three and a half years. These are not as clear. These are not, we don't have a note that gives a time frame here. These are conclusions, theological conclusions. So scholars will, will vary, and there's some debate. 
I'm talking about those within our camp. In other words, conservatives that are premillennial, pre-tribulational, that are futurists. We do know that probably early on, there's a ten-nation confederacy. It just makes more sense this early on, rather than second half or later. And the passage for that is Revelation 13, 1 and 2. This is organized by perhaps that rider on the horse that's described in Revelation 6. This might be part of his rise to power, is his ability not only to have the probably the Arabs or the nations and Israel agree to a peace treaty, but the ability to be able to conquer, if you will, by peaceful means, or at least rise to a ten-nation leadership or alliance. Very good. I'm sure about this. What's the ten-nation confederacy? Not including, like... Yeah, these would not be necessarily Arab nations. These are probably European nations. Probably the land areas of the ancient Roman Empire, because this would be a revived Roman Empire confederacy of ten of those nations. A lot of people thought it was the European Union when it, when it was first initiated with ten nations. In fact, I think Hal Lindsey said this is a fulfillment. But what are the 16, or I don't remember. They're dwindling. 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 They're but during this period of time, there'll, there'll be a solidified ten nations that'll be probably very clearly recognized. It's not a fulfillment. That's, that's the danger of trying to see fulfillments ahead. of A new world order, probably associated with the ten-nation confederacy, but it'll go beyond just politics. It'll be a new world order that is begun, where there'll be an organizing of religions, there'll be an organizing of the economies, there'll be an organizing of cultures... The leader will continue to rise in popularity and begin to be able to bring together different factions. So you have kind of a one-world system, Babylonianism at its peak, as we've discussed. It's interesting that they refer to the world. Yes. And it's also interesting. Yes. Be careful not to call them fulfillments, call them maybe preparations. Preparation. Well, even the fact that the world language is now becoming English, everybody's learning. It's, you know, setting it just like in Babel, like the same language. Mm-hmm. Went to Europe sometime, everybody speaks English. <laughs> Everywhere you go, right? Another thing, in the very beginning, and I'm going to talk some more about this, we're going to talk specifically about sealed judgment. So we'll come back to that. I'm just giving you a summary of the major events. And again, this is another conclusion and most scholars see the seal judgments beginning very early, particularly that first one Jim read. So Revelation chapter 6 begins not entirely in the first three and a half years, although there are some scholars that put all six of them in that first three and a half years. Uh, I prefer a different approach. We'll talk about that. So seal judgments begin, and in this case, the chronology of the book of Revelation fits. Sometimes it doesn't fit. Persecution, we see that in several passages. Matthew 24, 9 would be one that you can use. Now, it'll begin probably with uh, persecution of Jewish people because Jewish people will be the first to respond, more than likely. But it'll continue with all believers. And in fact, Revelation 6 speaks of... A, a large number of believers before the throne, and they be, they appear to be martyrs 
In fact, that's one of the seal judgments. Uh, the fifth seal judgment are martyrs, 9 through 11, and they're before the throne. And later on, in chapter 7, verse 9, they are also uh, martyred and dead as well. So lots of persecution. I think it begins in the first three and a half. It is most intense in the second three and a half. So I think it begins early. This is debated, and in fact, there are some scholars from our camp that believe that this might take place, even this Russian invasion might take place even before the rapture. And that's a possibility. But it seems best to put it during this seven-year period of time because there's going to be all kinds of turmoil, all kinds of things going on there. I was going to ask the same thing. I was going to say, like, how do we know? That's the theological conclusion. Invasion of... Gog and Magog. That's the Ezekiel 38-39 invasion of of the land of Israel. There are some that hold to that. It makes more sense that it probably happens in that first three and a half years. And it's not precise. It doesn't give us a time frame. Yet... Well, what we see today may be preparation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's where I put that, which is a major eschatological event or series of events. So those are the five. There's others as well. For example, there's references in Daniel 11 to Egypt and a defeat by Antichrist, uh, Daniel 11, 40 through 43. That could fall into this period of time. I didn't put it on the slide because it's most unclear when that happens. And there's also somewhat appears to be a uniting or a coalition of armies in the east. But they probably invade later. But you might have the organizing of them in these early states. So back on our timeline, we have ten nations somewhere in that time frame, the first three and a half. Lots of conversions. At least the 144,000 for sure, and then probably many more after that. And then along with that, persecution. And I don't have them on a time, obviously. It's just somewhere in this time frame. So that's the seven years. And I, the way I interpret the seal judgments, I think they give us a panoramic picture of the whole seven-year period of time. So I think what we have is an introductory preview of the seven years in the six seal judgments. And there's debate on that as well. I'll give you the alternative viewpoint, which is probably very popular. So by panoramic, are you saying throughout the period, the six seals, all of them are occurring? I think they unfold. In other words, the first one unfolds, and then there may be a period of time, and then the second one is opened, and it unfolds, and the sixth one probably towards the end. And unfolding means it starts. It starts, it keeps, keeps, keeps okay. continuing. In other words, like the fifth so one so. is persecution. So it may start even early, but continue throughout the rest of it. Now that peace that I think the first seal judgment pictures, that may come to an end. But then there's other things that come after that that might continue. All right? So that's how I see the seal judgments. And I see a paralleling of these three major judgments. Seven trumpets, probably starting in the first three and a half, but continuing through the last three. And there's no dates on these, so you can't pinpoint those. And these judgments are more specific and more devastating as you go into each of them. And then we have a set of bowl judgments 
and I probably have them out of scale in terms of the length of time because I see them kind of accumulating very rapidly, maybe even in the last year. And again, we don't have a time frame for them. But I see them parallel. Now, when we later on, I'm going to give you an, another scheme. In fact, let me give it to you right away. Just The other scheme is sequential. So we have seals, trumps, bowls. And what I've got is, this is the sequential, and I'll come back and we'll talk about it again. And the way I've got it is parallel, where you have seals, trumps, and bowls. There's an overlap in the parallel. Yeah. See the difference? And some excellent scholars hold to, to this and I prefer this, and I'll, I'll give you the reasons for it later on. Just for now, that's why I've arranged it this way. Okay, so those are the events of the first three and a half years. The next on your outline sheet is in the middle. Now, these are precise, some of these, because we have a tie-in based on certain passages. By the middle, Antichrist dominates, Revelation 13. He dominates the world politically, economically, and religiously, and I think he reaches a peak in the middle, the peak of his power. And the precise dating, we have the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15. Jesus ties that to Daniel. Daniel specifies that it takes place in the middle. So that one, we have a precise date for that one. That's the Daniel 9, 27. We also have, I think, a precise dating for the killing of the two witnesses because it says that they will prophesy for three and a half years and then they will be killed. So I put their deaths in the middle and you could include their resurrections as well. They'll be raised for three days. Or is it three and a half years? Yeah. So if two witnesses are killed, that's Revelation 11, 7. And what Jesus says... In Matthew 24, 15, he says, when you see this happening, what are, you, what are the Jews to do? Flee. Get out of town. Flee. Get out of town. So we have believers fleeing, and particularly Israel. Particularly Israel. And that's 24, 15 and following. It describes, you know, it's, it, uh, it's better if you're not pregnant, because you're going to have a hard time getting around. Not on the Sabbath. <laughs> not on the Sabbath, because if you're a Sabbath observer, you're not going to be able to get very far from Jerusalem. Okay, so get out of town. And I put it in, at beginning at this point because of what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15. And then we have intense persecution. And we see that. In martyrdom, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and you could include the Matthew 24, 15 and on passage, because then it says, then the tribulation will be great, and that's where he makes that statement, it's never been this way ever in the past, and never will be in the future. Plus, the Revelation 12, we saw that, Revelation 12, where the woman flees into the wilderness, and that's where I would pinpoint it because the persecution is most intense. So that's the middle. So on our timeline, we have the abomination in the middle, and that'll kick off persecution that intensifies and will continue throughout the rest of the seven years. Okay? So that's the middle. 
second half, last three and a half years. I see the seal judgments continuing. Some of those that see the sequential layout would see them ending probably in the first three and a half or somewhere in there. But I see them continuing because of the way that I'm understanding them. And I would see the trumpet judgments either beginning or the latter stages of the trumpet judgments. We don't, these are conclusions again. These are not tied to any specific time frame. And towards the end, and I think most conservative scholars would also see, obviously, the bold judgments at the end, whether you see them parallel or whether you see them sequential. Bold judgments. There appears to be a rebellion of the nations, probably pictured in Revelation 9, 14 through 16, and there's other passages as well, where after Antichrist reaches a peak, everything's not hunky-dory in the world, and people begin to realize, well, maybe he's not really a good leader, and you know he's persecuting people and doing all kinds of weird things. I think there's going to begin a disintegration of the kingdom of, of Antichrist, along with some of the judgments. I think some of the judgments are going to be focused on Antichrist and his kingdom. Some of that will contribute to this rebellion of the nations. Yeah, and there's Old Testament passages that indicate that. We mentioned the persecution continues, continues to intensify, last three and a half years. Nations rebelling, probably close to the end. There's going to be armies coming from the east, and there's going to be a world war. And then we have things that are specified at the end. Fall of Babylon, Revelation 17 and 18. And we'll expand this. We're going to talk some more about that. Armageddon, we'll expand this one as well. There's lots of passages dealing with Armageddon. Third World War, if you will, Revelation 9, 13 through 21. Revelation 9, 13 through 21, Armageddon. And there's others in the book of Revelation, and there's some in the Old Testament. A great earthquake described in Zechariah 14.4. In fact, that passage says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is at the end. He's going to end it. He's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, on the Mount, will, and the Mount will be Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. This is going to be a huge earthquake. Form, and the text goes on, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving to the north, half moving to the south. And in our trip to Israel, we're going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. Look for the very spot that Jesus is going to return to. Great earthquake. Cataclysms. Revelation 16, 17 through 21. You could also include Revelation 6, and this is one of the main reasons why I see a paralleling, because they seem to be the same phenomenon in the sixth seal judgment as what we have in the seventh bowl judgment. So Revelation 6, 12 through 17, and Revelation 16, 17 through 21. I should have put second coming in there. Pretty important. Yeah, pretty important. We need to put that in there as well. Number five, second coming. Revelation 19, he ends this period of time. So we have Babylon falling at the end. We have lots of events just coming together here. Armageddon, part of the fall of Babylon is probably what happens at Armageddon, part of it. And then we have second coming.
And with the second coming will be judgments that, that are associated with establishing the kingdom. We'll talk about them. You can put judgments as well, second coming judgments. Matthew 25 comes in. Yes. Separating the sheep. Yes. Yes. Matthew 25. So those are your major events, the major events of the tribulation. We're still somewhat, I don't know if you want to call it introductory, but at least trying to spell out some of the major characteristics and nature of this period of time. We've looked at the basis of it, of the seven-year period. We saw some of the major conditions, major events last time, and now we want to focus on some of the major participants because I think they're spelled out for us. Now, they're spelled out in a variety of passages all over prophetic scriptures, but they seem to be grouped together in Revelation 12 and 13. So let's take another look at them. We've already looked at these two passages in relationship to Israel, but let's broaden our look at them and look at the major participants that will be involved in this seven-year period of time. We saw the woman, 12, 1, and 2, and then she's referred to again in 4 through 6. And we mentioned when we were looking at that, it was, let's see, and a great sign appeared. Greek word, samion, which in most contexts refers to anything that can be a sign not just ne- not necessarily prophetic or not necessarily spiritual, but there are a lot of contexts where, like this one, it refers in terms of a sign, something in the sense of like a symbol, and I, that's the way I understand it in this context. So a sign or a symbol, and in the book of Revelation, John uses it, and in most of the context, it has this idea of a symbol, so... I take the woman to be a symbol, and the issue and the question is, what is she a symbol of? And there's a variety of interpretations. We touched on that before, but it makes more sense from all of the evidence to conclude that the uh, the woman is the nation of Israel. So that's how I interpret the woman. And by the way, we're starting that second sheet here, the, the sheet that I passed out today. It's got two sides to it. With her being Israel, because there are some commonalities with with Joseph's dream. Yes. Yes. The sun and the stars. Yes. Or or sun and the moon and then Abraham with the twelve or with the stars. Right. That's part part of the support in favor of Israel. And Joseph seems to be looking ahead at a time when he would be prominent and dominant. Part of that is fulfilled at the end of the book of Genesis, but I think it looks way beyond. Okay, so the woman I take to be Israel, and as we've said, this is Jewish eschatology. This main focus, and that's probably why it begins with the woman, the main focus of this period of time is Israel, so Israel is going to be the main participant in that seven-year period of time. The woman is not the Virgin Mary. The woman is not the church. Some take it that way. The Jehovah's Witnesses take it that it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, but Israel is the best interpretation. There's a dragon. We've talked about the dragon. He is prominent. 
He's in verses 3 and 4, and we have another sign. Now, this one is interpreted for us, so there's no question. The dragon, particularly verse 9, it's interpreted as the serpent of old, Satan himself. So there should not be any interpretive question here, unlike what we have with woman that is not interpreted specifically for us. We have a man-child, and when we looked at it before... In verse 2, the child, the woman is pregnant with child. And then 4 and 5, he's identified as a male child. And obviously, this is Messiah. There's plenty of indication in the text itself that gives us clues that probably exclude anyone else other than Messiah. So Israel is the most important participant during the seven-year period of time. We said this is Satan's finest hour, so there's a lot of satanic activity, and even this passage indicates that Satan seems to be confined to earth. In other words, he's thrown out of heaven, and I think the reference in this context is that he's confined to earth now, so that's the only domain that he has to operate, and he's going to pour out his full wrath and destruction on humanity during this period of time, so A lot of what we'll see is the work and activity of Satan within the sovereign hand of God and with the permissive will of God, he will work during that seven-year period of time. God is mentioned, and the way he's mentioned is kind of quietly behind the scenes, but we've already seen from some passages that he is the one that that brings about the judgments. He's the originator of the judgments specifically mentioned, 12, 5, and 6. In fact, we didn't read, let's see, I don't remember if we read those. Let's go ahead and read them. Mark, why don't you start us off, 12, 5, and 6. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, <clears throat> who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished by Nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so God is mentioned in verse 6. This male child caught up to God. And then, let's see, you skipped to 10, right? Or where did you read? I left off at the end of 6. Okay, the end of 6. Yeah, in other words, the woman flees to a place prepared by God. So God is involved, and then read 10 as well. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Okay, notice in verse 10, kingdom of our God, God is mentioned and the dragon is thrown down, the accuser of the brethren, he's thrown down. That's the verse that I understand to see him confined to earth. And skip down to 17. You want to read that one as well. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and the testament of Jesus. So God again referenced in verse 17. And we looked at those in relationship to Israel fleeing. God is going to protect them for that last three and a half years until the second coming. And it's not as prominent as the other personages, but God is still actively involved. He's sovereign over this seven-year period of time. Then we have a lot of angelic activity. 
And when I teach the book of Revelation, I emphasize that one of the main themes of the whole book of Revelation are the activity of these angels, both demonic and good angels, but good angels are very prominent. You can develop an entire angelology just from the book of Revelation alone. You have all of the elements that would make up a theology of angels contained just in the book of Revelation. And most of the activity is during this seven-year period of time. So they will be very active. They will be instruments of God as well. Besides Jesus Christ executing judgments, angelic beings are also utilized as well. There's a special angel in chapter 14 that will proclaim the gospel to the whole world. So if they haven't heard it from the 144,000, if they haven't heard it from fellow people in the nations that have received Christ and a witness that they might proclaim, then uh, they will at least have heard it from an angel in chapter 14. So a lot of angelic activity, and specifically, Mark read verse 7, and verse 8 is also involved there where we have this angelic conflict. And there's going to be a great angelic conflict and a war that's going to take place on earth between angelic beings of the demonic realm along with angelic beings of uh, the good realm or good angels. And Michael is going to be prominent. Verse 7, there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, etc. And then the dragons. So angelic conflict is part of what's going on. Sixth, in chapter 13, we have the first beast described. We'll come back and look at him in more detail. That first beast comes with a variety of names. One of them is Antichrist. So I think the first beast is Antichrist himself. So chapter 13 continues giving us major participants. And let's read a few verses in there. Jim, do you want to pick up? Uh, one and two, first of all. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. That goes probably all the way back to the book of Daniel and some of the visions that Daniel had. And he sees this beast, and it almost appears... The description seems to be a composite. In other words, it has all of the negative characteristics of the beasts that Daniel saw. They're going to come together in this one beastly empire. And this individual, this beast, personifies the kingdom, and it also represents the the personage that will occupy that position of leadership. And I think the the imagery here with the ten horns, horns generally are powers or nations, and the ten and seven heads, attention is called to them, and they're going to be defined in more detail in chapter 17. And on his horns were ten diadems, in other words, ten leaders, ten kings that probably rule over these ten nations. This is one of the passages that speaks of this this coalition of ten nations that Daniel speaks of. And the beast is over them. And verse 2, you didn't read that one, right? And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. 
That speaks volumes there. It speaks in... Think of seven. It's a reminder. Yep. Of seven. I know. Yeah. That's kind of a composite. The compo- in other words, all of the evil characteristics of those those empires of Daniel's vision come together in this one last empire. And you have the beasts spelled out there. But notice the source of his power. This is under the permissive will of God. The dragon, in other words, it's satanic power. Pure satanic power. And not only that, but the throne and the authority Satan. So he's the antithesis of God. That's the first beast. Then we have a second beast, beginning in verse 11. Well, this first beast, if we expanded this, we'll come back. And let me just give you a brief overview here. Concerning his person, he's going to have political sovereignty over the whole world. He's also going to perform a sign. I call it a pseudo-sign or a false sign. A counterfeit death and resurrection. That's described in Revelation 13. In fact, all of this is out of Revelation 13. I'm using alliteration here with P's, if you haven't noticed already. And there's going to be sharing of praise. There's going to be worldwide adoration, worldwide praise of him, worldwide worship of the beast. In the middle, and I think this is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, 15, this is what Paul is referring to in 2 Thessalonians 2, and it appears in the middle he will proclaim himself to be God, and the world will worship him as God. He will convince them with his sign that, in fact, he is God. So there will be praise. And that's from the abomination of desolation. That is the abomination of desolation, and it will probably be performed in the, in the temple itself. Yeah, that I interpret that to be the mm-hmm. abomination that desecrates the temple. Here's a false world leader that proclaims himself God in the temple. That will desecrate it. His program, as described in these ten verses, is a profane opposition to everything that is true, everything that is of God, everything that is biblical. We're not there, but it's kind of It's moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. Profane opposition, persecuting dominion, He will be the source of anti-Semitism, anti-Christian, everything that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. And that'll be his program. That'll be part of his administrative work. And the third thing, this pervasive worship will continue throughout until he's destroyed. So that's the first beast. Second beast, beginning in verse 11 through 15, or the rest of the chapter there. Let's read that one. Eric, why don't you read first two verses there? Yeah, just read 11 and 12. Okay. Then I saw another beast coming up, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Whose fatal wound was healed? See the reference to that pseudo sign or false, false miracle, and notice his function. What is his function primarily? Point people to the, the point people to the first beast, and there's something of an analogy that's going on here. I like to call it an unholy trinity, where each of the unholy trinity, each person, personage fulfills a counterfeit function, much like what God in the Holy Trinity functions. Uh, we have a dragon, who's Satan himself. He's operating, obviously, 
not only overtly, but he is the organizer, he's the source of all things, just as the Father is the source of all things in the Holy Trinity. So we have the dragon, he's described in chapter 12, and the personification, or the you might even say the incarnation, the false incarnation dragon is a human personage. And that incarnation is the first beast. And he is what we would describe as Antichrist. So he's a counterfeit Messiah with a counterfeit kingdom. He's the second person of the unholy trinity. And just as Eric pointed out, there's a second beast that directs people's attention to the first beast, gives glory to the first beast, much like the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus, convicts of sin, brings people into saving relationship, and gives glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a trinity that is diabolical, totally unholy. The dragon, chapter 12, first beast, first 10 verses of 13, second beast, last verses of chapter 13. He's also described as the false prophet. Just as the Holy Spirit inspires truth, in God's servants, so also the false prophet will inspire the worship and the devotion to the first. So those are the major participants. These two beasts will be very prominent. There'll be two parts of this world empire that will dominate the world during that period of time. For evil. It's fascinating how the more secular our society becomes, the more spiritual we're also becoming. It almost seems like they're and are there, they contradict each other, but when it's, it's anti-Christianity, yes. anti-Judaism, but not, counterfeit. Anti, yeah, not anti-spiritual, it's spiritualism. So we, the more secular we get, the more spiritual we actually manifest, yeah, which is setting a, up a perfect... How is it put, that there's a God-shaped vacuum in yeah. all men, that they have to fill it with something? If they've rejected the true God, then they fill it with a counterfeit. Exactly. But he wants to... Because yep. even in the New Age movement, they, you know, lo- they refer to a lot of things as a person, even though there's... Right. Yeah, it's a force, and... Yeah, exactly. Jim? Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, Satan, when he revealed that he was going to be like, well, he's confirming the, the uh, legitimacy... He meant that literally. <laughs> of, the, ...of the Trinity. Yeah. Because he's being like God in turn. Exactly. Yep. So is that him not, not, not able to be creative like God, or is that him trying to imitate so he can deceive? I think the latter. I think the yeah. second, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. To imitate, because he's a counterfeit. Mm-hmm. And that's his main function. Yeah. In fact, that's what he did in the garden, is deceive. So he's not original at all, you see what I mean? Yep. <laughs> that's right. Well, let's conclude the nature of tribulation by looking at some of the responses And these are spelled out. And let's start with Vivian here. Read Revelation uh, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. And Hanada, why don't you do Revelation 4, 8, starting in verse 8. There's several in there. I'll give you some other ones as well. And I don't have them up here, so let's do them one at a time. Those are two that we'll look at. So it's Revelation 6. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, and read to verse 17. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
And they raised, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of That is very, what is it? Very clear, I guess is the best way to describe it. In terms of man's depravity, he's fully aware of what's going on. He is aware that what is happening on the earth. I take the context of that. If chapter 6 is a panorama of the whole seven years, at the end of it, they're not falling down and worshiping God. In fact, they're calling upon the mountains to fall on them rather than them worshiping God. And they are aware that what's going on is divine. In other words, hide us from the... And they're even aware of the lamb, the specifics in terms of Christ himself. And what do they do? They curse God. That's the general response of the unbelievers during this period of time. And that's the general response overall, throughout time. And it's epitomized during this seven-year period of time. When things are totally evident, in other words, it is clear something beyond the physical, material realm, something beyond that is happening. The judgments are divine judgments. God is doing something unusual here. Man raises his fist to that God. And these are people that have accepted the false Messiah. These are the unbelievers. They curse God. We also have several passages in the book of Revelation. Another theme besides angels is worship. And most of those are scenes in heaven. The first one is in chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. And notice what's going on in heaven. And it includes not only men, but it includes angelic creatures as well. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Now, those are angelic creatures. Keep reading. Yes, 4-8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. And was covered with eyes all around even under his wings. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So, angelic creatures praising God. Now this is with an awareness of this period of time what and what God is doing. Keep reading. Because Hanada is going to be described in this passage. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him, who sits on the throne, and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Okay, the 24 elders probably are representatives of the body of Christ, representative of Hanara and the rest of us. And they worship. So those before the throne are worshiping. You have the same thing in chapter 5. You have the same thing... Even in chapter 6, when it describes the martyrs, you have the same thing in chapter 7, where you have the multitudes, they are, that's a heavenly scene. Uh, you have other heavenly scenes throughout the book of Revelation, and in every one of them, you have worship. One of the most evident things in the book of Revelation is the contrast between what's going on in heaven with what's going on in earth, on earth, on earth devastation, gloom, darkness, destruction, etc. In heaven, primarily worship. And the worship is includes angelic creatures as well as those that are taken out of the tribulation through death. So lots of worship during this time. The nation of Israel, this is their time that they are purified. This is where Israel responds and accepts their Messiah. Israel as a nation. 
not every single Jew, but as a nation, as a national entity, this is the salvation of Israel. So they trust in the Lamb. They trust in Messiah. This is also the time where the nations are converted. So you do have conversions. You'd have a response of salvation. And obviously you have the unbelieving Israelites, the unbelieving nations, they would be represented by the unbelieving, the first group there. doesn't specify in that passage who they are. It's just, it says, it's kind of universal in terms of kings, in terms of slaves, all unbelievers. So those are the responses of God. Yeah. Um, question. Just in terms of the personages, that's a good. You hear somebody, you know, people. Well, God's spirit. Yeah, that's a good question because I do believe that the Holy Spirit will, in fact, be removed in a sense. Now, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that there are all three of the persons of the Trinity are equal in deity. In other words, we believe in the deity of the Holy Spirit, not just the deity of Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is truly God, then the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. So I believe in the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit, no matter what period of time, including the, the tribulation. But there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit's ministry will be somewhat different than what it is during the church age. It'll be more like it was in the Old Testament. It'll be more selective. The 144,000 are probably filled with the Holy Spirit. The two prophets pro- probably prophesy by the inspiration and filling of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is ministering, and the Holy Spirit will function, but it'll be more like the Old Testament than it is during the church age. Does that make sense? So not automatically involved? There's no verse that seems to indicate that. It just seems to put them all together with that passage. It seems to say that the restrainer is removed, Second Thessalonians 2. Uh, that makes the most sense to me. Okay. So that concludes what I've described as the nature of the tribulation, including events and personages. Let's devote the time to the judgments of God. And part of the reason I want to give you some more information on this and focus on it a little bit is because our culture today has gone so far away from these perfections of God, that we need to almost emphasize them. In fact, a question that I was going to ask our group on Sunday was, I was going to ask them and I forgot, because I was doing a, in Romans 18, and I'm talking about the wrath of God, so I spent two whole Sundays on the wrath of God, just because people kind of shy away from it. And the question to ask is, how many of you have heard a sermon on the wrath of God? Ever. Okay, ever. All right. right. Has it been a while? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Not very common, even though I'm going to try and give you a lot of verses that indicate that. Not only the wrath of God, but all of the associated perfections of God, like his judgment, God is judge, his holiness. The church today tends to kind of back away away from from that. Shy away from that. Oh, I love it. To me, it's like, bring it, just tell it like it is. Yeah. <laughs> this thing where you sugarcoat it doesn't work. Yeah, one of the points I was making as well is that we really can't even comprehend, but certainly not appreciate the grace of God unless we have a good handle on the judgment <laughs> and the holiness and the wrath of God. So before you can teach on the grace, I think you have to lay a foundation of Amen. the judgment of God. Right, And yet we do the opposite. 
The churches today emphasize the love of God, the grace of God. And they should be emphasized. I'm not diminishing them. But without an understanding of the total picture of who God is, we can't appreciate those gracious and loving aspects of who God is. So let me give you a lot of notes on these. And let's talk, first of all, about the justice of God. And what I want to start off with is the concept and in explaining the concept, I like to start, in fact, I we talked about this in our introduction to eschatology, and it's good to kind of remind us, but it's good to remind people that all of us, remember the very first message that we had on eschatology, all of us yearn for something better than what we have today. In other words, we know that there's something wrong with the world in which we live in, and we yearn for justice. I use the illustration that children have a keen understanding of justice. I use the example that if you have twins, you give one one candy and you give the other one two candies, you can have a revolt. Remember that? Well, that's ingrained in us. In other words, we have a sense that there is a, a right and a wrong and there is justice, and we're keen to pick up when something is not just. And I think everyone has that sense even the unbeliever, obviously. So we yearn for God's justice, but we have to understand what's involved in God implementing justice. In order for him to do that, he must deal with sin, and he must deal with sin in a righteous way. So we have to understand the righteousness of God. We have to understand uh, the elements of justice. And when you get down to the elements of it, we don't want to see it. We don't, but yet we yearn for it, but we don't want to see it. Because it condemns us. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So if you can start off by emphasizing that aspect, even to an unbeliever, you want justice. You don't want me to slap you in the face and get away with it, right? Uh, you don't want me to steal and break into your house and take your money and, and get away with it. You you want justice. You you want your money back, or you want some way of of dealing with it. And when we talk about the wrath of God, the justice of God. The righteous of God, God is dealing with justice that we all ultimately want, but fear because we are guilty. Jim? Uh, I know that when you refer to the perfection, you're referring to many as opposed to learned as known, and that's fine. Uh, I'm going to come to the point of this journey uh, where we're created in the image of And uh, I like, you know, Charlie talks about that... Uh, our characteristics, our derivatives, our attributes. Yeah, we're in the image of God. So when he, when God creates us, uh, this yearning for right and wrong, for example, is derived from God's justice and his righteousness. Absolutely. Right? And yes. You, and you can kind of go through all those right. those different attributes and and correlate them to what's, what the derivative is in us as being created in his image. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we get the yearning is we're in the image of God even though we've perverted that as a result of sin and the image is damaged, we still inwardly and deeply have that desire. And when we introduced this whole course, I talked about that's why you see manifestations of man trying to create a kingdom on earth or a utopia or a better situation. That's why you have an environmental movement. That's why you have a peace movement because we sense that things are not right and we move in that direction. Everyone has an eschatology. Everyone wants God to do something and to make things right. 
things are not right, and we want things to be made right. We just don't know how to do it. God is ultimately making things right. God is working to resolve the issue of evil. His judgment is the means by which he's going to use in order to accomplish that. So his judgment, when we read in scriptures, it's frightening because we know we are guilty. I have found it helpful in trying to illustrate the concept of justice by using some simple illustrations, things that we encounter every day. For example, a housewife, when she has a bowl of fruit and one of them or a couple of them are rotting, beginning to rot, what does she do? Well, in order to preserve the the bulk of the fruit, she removes those that are damaged, those that are that are rotting. That's an illustration of what God is doing in terms of sin and in terms of evil. He is removing and separating out that that is destroying that that he loves. That's an illustration of judgment. We can also see for men, men like a mechanic, let's say, he changes the oil and he removes the grimy oil from the car because the grimy oil is doing damage to the parts of the engine. So in replacing the oil, he's separating out that that is doing damage. That's what God does. He's removing that that does damage to that that he loves. Or you might say like a craftsman, when he's working with, when he's working with woods, maybe making a cabinet or something, just like sin does damage to us and to a culture, so also the craftsman He removes the rough edges or the splinters or the things that are going to cause damage to those that enjoy the the craftsmanship. So he sands down the rough edges. What he's doing is he's applying judgment upon the piece of art that he's producing in order to make it more functional. So we see this in everyday life that we do, but uh, somehow we have a hard time when it comes to God himself. Another illustration would be a coach. And this one relates to a team. If if one of the, the members on the team doesn't have the right attitude, the coach has to discipline him and sometimes put him on the bench. That's a judgment. That's a discipline. Because that attitude is going to do damage to the team and, in fact, going to hinder them from winning games. So he's got to deal with that issue. When God enters into judgment, he is dealing with humanity, dealing with these kinds of issues. He needs to sort them out. He needs to separate them out. And every judgment is God separating sin because it is destroying that that he loves. Another example that's even more vivid is that of society itself. No one wants to live in a society of lawlessness where crime is not dealt with, so a society must deal with crime. And the way that we deal with crime through the instrumentality of of government, in fact, government is instituted by God, but it is one of the means that God implements judgment, basically, in terms of crime. And we want justice. We don't want criminals to get away with crime because it only increases. It only causes them and motivates them to do more crime. So we must deal with, with crime in a culture. And that's what God is doing. So that may illustrate for those that have a hard time with a God that is judgmental or a God who executes justice. So the concept is a 
an area where God is simply dealing with evil, and all of us inwardly yearn for God to do that. And like I said, the problem is not with what God is doing. The problem is that we all fall short, and we all recognize that we stand guilty before this holy God.